I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Although Black architects attain the same education, perform on the same project teams, and complete similar project types, historically their credentials are questioned and their work often goes unnoticed. We're here to change that. I'm Karen Burton. And I'm Sandra Little. And this is Hidden in Plain Sight, and that's spelled S-I-T-E. The podcast where the world can get to know the very significant contributions contemporary and trailblazing architects have made to the profession, the community, and major cities across the U.S. Hey, Sandra. Hey, how's it going, Karen? All right. I'm excited because our guest is working on some things where we are immersed right now. She is researching Black churches, and we are taking a tour of a few Black churches in Detroit and getting to know about them and uh, their architects. So today we'll be talking with Sarah Timberlake. Sarah is a Detroit-based architectural designer educator, mentor, and theorist. Sarah works at Quinn Evans, an architecture firm where she works at the intersection of design planning and community engagement. One of the most important things Sarah does, though, is she is the Youth Outreach Chair for NOMA National, National Organization of Minority Architects National, and she has led Project Pipeline for the past four years. Project Pipeline here in Michigan is a free five-day youth architecture camp 
where students, high school students and some middle school students learn about architecture and they get a hands-on experience in a design project. In addition to that, Sarah is still engaged with her research from college. Her thesis from college uh, is called Call and Response, Speculation of a Future Typology for the Black Church, where she aims to clarify a design language to the historic American Black Church while proposing a building typology for the Black Church in this current moment. So we are really excited to talk with Sarah about uh, her work that she's doing in Detroit and her Black church research. I have to say, I'm excited about today too. Like Sarah, you know, say I'm working with her. So that's a, a inside track there, right? Yep. So just to uh, <laughs> see how, like when you read the bio and a person actually personifies that in their real life, it's, uh, you know, you've walked into seeing an extraordinary person, right? She's a, we worked together on a um, neighborhood planning study for Woodbridge neighborhood. Uh, where it pulled together, like I said, design and community engagement and really hearing what the community had to say and interpret that into a design solution for the Woodbridge neighborhood. And really, we and, and it was funny, we ended off our community engagement in a church So <laughs> for that project. <laughs> so it really kind of relates to everything that uh, Sarah is doing in her career and, 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 and where she has done in her research with her thesis. I'm excited to see... Uh, Everyone kind of get a glimpse of, of this young person that I think you're privy to see the beginning of something great. Uh, she is a lot more to come because of her age, uh, and she's already completed a lot. Within the uh, NOMA pipeline program here in Michigan, she pours a lot into the students that she's touched over the last three years. And we've talked about this on the show before, the importance of exposure to young people in architecture. And she brings that to them. It's almost like they can see themselves and being in her shoes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and like I said, she pours a lot into that. And you may not uh, think that like, oh, it's a lot to talk about with black churches, but uh, you're going to find out a lot. You're going to hear a lot on this show. <laughs> where You're you're going to hear a lot and you're going to want to hear more even after this episode is over. Yeah. Every time I uh, talk to her about her thesis, I'm like, man, that's like, I never would have thought to do that for her thesis study and how, how much you can uncover and unpack with that. I mean, it's, it really exposes a lot within our, our culture, right? That how African-Americans, we're, you know, we're, we're just a little bit different, right? And things that we hold as cultural centers for us is different than some other uh, ethnic groups. So it's just uh, giving you a little glimpse into where our, our communities come from and, and some of the key points that actually uh, link us together. Now here's Sarah. So a few years ago when I attended homecoming at University of Michigan and got to tour the new edition, I met this wonderful young lady who was I believe you were a tour guide during that time, and uh, she was so enthusiastic about the school and enthusiastic about architecture, and it was Sarah Timberlake, and I really enjoyed getting to meet her and learning about her uh, experiences at U of M and being a part of the um, student design competition with NOMA. 
I've had the pleasure of spending time with her and learning more about her ever since. So, Sarah, we are so happy to have you on with us today. Thank you, guys. I'm so happy to be on this uh, podcast. And I can officially say this is my first official podcast recording. So my mom will be over the moon to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) It's fitting right in with our mission, uh, Sarah. You know, uh, we were saying we're uplifting the voice of African-American designers and architects. Um, elevating you to another level to let people hear your personal stories. And we've had a couple that we've come across as this is their first podcast interview. And it shows the importance of the, the work that we're doing. Our stories are unique. People can see our tenacity and our great desire to get into an area that most of us and in, in, in our neighborhoods don't know about. Yeah. Well, Sarah, tell us a little bit about your Detroit design story. Are you from Detroit? I'm not. And I have often gotten mistaken as a Detroiter, which is funny to me, because (laughs) to me, I can see all the ways that I'm not a Detroiter. I was actually talking about this with my roommate who she's born and raised in Detroit around the corner for where my house is at. And I tell her, like, I don't know anything about a car. I just know my car goes room and it goes on the street. <laughs> and she knows everything about how to change it and the make and model. And I'm like, red car, white car. So <laughs> I, I am be the first to say that I am not from Detroit, but I have been grafted into the city since I've been here. So I'm originally from Chicago. I was born in Chicago and I was raised in the South Suburbs in Park Forest, Illinois, which is a majority Black uh, suburb. Uh, So I was there from like two through high school. Then after that, in my college years, I lived a little bit everywhere. I did my undergrad at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Also studied abroad my last year there. So I was in Barcelona for my last year of school. And then I came back to Chicago to work for a year. And then after that, I went to the University of Michigan for grad school, which is where me and Karen met. And then once I graduated, I uh, somehow got pulled into Detroit, but I'm very glad that I landed here. So, yeah, I feel that Detroit chose me <laughs> in a way. Yeah, yeah, we have a lot of uh, connections between Detroit and Chicago. You know, Chicago always considers themselves to be the bigger city. You know, they are. But I, it's a lot of kindred spirits between the uh, two cities that yeah, we've seen a couple of architects who've come back and forth between that those two cities. and. Like Kim Dowdell is a native Detroiter who now stays in Chicago, yeah. right? So it's a quick train ride, quick drive away for us. So we, we, we have a lot of connection with them. Yeah. You jumped right in to Detroit, to the neighborhoods, already bought a house and really just immersed yourself in the Detroit experience. No wonder people think you're a Detroiter. <laughs> I think part of it is, uh, and this is actually a conversation, although my friends are not architects, but uh, a lot of times many people may see you as you know, someone who lives in a place or is familiar with a place if you know the history of a place. I mean, I think because I've just been in a lot of positions where I've learned different histories of Detroit from different people, from my friend who grew up around the corner, from my architecture studio where I was designing in Detroit, or from different people that I work with on a project. And I think oftentimes when you can speak about a history, a lot of people probably assume that like you've been here for a while you've been like really entrenched into it so I can thank all the people who share their stories with me that I can I can say that I can uh, pass as a Detroiter. One of the things you jump right into community though your work within ARC prep program your rec your work within NOMA's uh, project pipeline 
you jump right into the community trade and everybody assumes, like I said, it's like that you've been here. Yeah. Uh, you ingrained, right? So that attitude that you had towards that, I don't know if you want to speak a little bit towards, you know, your work in the community, but it, you're a Detroiter because you you show your love. That's that's all it is. Yeah. Um, so part of that is, I think since a young age, I've always had giving back to the community ingrained into who I am. So there are many times, if you didn't know, I, amongst many things, I also was a Girl Scout. I got my gold awards. So during my younger years. I was years, a Girl Scout too. Oh, beautiful. I'd love <laughs> yes. to know my, my fellow Girl Scout. Yes. Uh-huh. My I honor. I, I was try. not a Girl Scout, but okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But during my time in Girl Scouts, our local Girl Scout chapter would always help out with like a Kiwana pancake event in Park Forest, um, which I think it was a fundraiser put on through Kiwanis, but we basically were f- flipping pancakes all the time. I did Girl Scouts all the way through high school because my mom was the troop leader, so I didn't really have much choice in the matter. But and with that, I think that came a lot of community service, giving back. It was always just kind of a culture of things that we did in our family. And even outside of some of my giving back to community in the architecture world in Detroit, I'm also really involved in my local church here in Detroit, where I also, there's a lot of ways that I'm interfacing with my community, my neighbors, the people who are next to me or the place where we're meeting at. And I think also because in my adulthood, I've moved around a lot that I think it's in a way made me Um, be more proactive about getting involved and getting engaged with the place that I'm at. Because there are some places where I'm only there for a year and I want to make the most of the year that I'm there. Um, So it was really important to learn what I can from the people there, learn what I can about the place that I'm there so that those different things that I learn, I could bring it into the different places and spaces that I find myself um, in the future. So to me, I feel like, I don't know if it's like I, I have to, be involved in community, but it's like, I don't know why you wouldn't be. <laughs> there are it's many ways. A, a part of who you are. Yeah, it's just a part it's of a part who of I am. Are. Like, there's many ways, like, I've benefited from people, like, professionally, I benefited from people who um, went out of their way to help me get acclimated to Detroit or get me acclimated to architecture school and other ways too. So it's just, what can I say? A community is involvement is like, as my, as my thing. Yeah. So Sarah and I work together, right? We work together <laughs> and at uh, Quinn Evans and we're in the office and Sarah's like, well, you know, I'm cooking dinner. I'm going to bring in something I cook for dinner. I made some, what, was it banana bread that you've been cooking or zucchini I've, bread? I've made so many things. I've made zucchini yeah. bread. <laughs> yes, like- I've made cookies. <laughs> I've made fruit tarts. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I think also when I'm cooking, I enjoy that. And I think a lot of people enjoy it too. So I'm like, oh, I made this extra. Might as well bring it in for my coworkers. It's I'm never been a bad decision. i to to Quinn Evans. Right. You come I'm in and it's like individually wrapped pieces of zucchini bread on the table. Oh, that's nice. And it's like, that's Sarah. And I said, I'm trying to stick to my diet. Did she bring this in? Like, but it's everybody's like, it's great with the coffee, you know, it's a cup of coffee and, and, and something in the office. But that's just how she is though. It's just like, it's more than a community. It's just welcoming everyone into, uh, you know, socialization and space with her. It's just a, it's a great thing to see, actually. Yeah. You're too kind. <laughs> so I, I like how you said, basically, you make the most of places and spaces when you have time there. I've only been able to travel abroad when I was in college for a month. How long were you in, in Spain and 
explain how you kind of made the most of that place when you were there. Yeah, I was there for nine months. So it was my last year of undergrad. Um, So some of it was a little disorienting because I left in the beginning of the school year and then I came back three days before graduation. So you can imagine I come back to the U.S. after, although my classes were in English when I was in Barcelona, you need to know Spanish to get around. And even the church I was involved with in Barcelona, it was an English speaking church but I was teaching the children at the time and some of the children, their first language is Spanish. So sometimes you got to know Spanish to, you know, get them in shape and to stop bouncing off the walls. But yeah, it was such an adjustment to be in Barcelona for nine years, English almost being something like a second language and then coming back to like a really strong Midwestern accent. (laughs) But um, (laughs) I actually, my time in Barcelona was probably one of my more formative times um, in my adulthood so far for a couple of reasons. I think that was the first time in my undergrad where I could only explain it as I learned how to design. And I think there were a lot of things that, of course, a lot of different elements that I learned in my other undergrad years and in my sophomore and junior year. And also for context, I didn't do any architecture classes in high school, although I tried to. So college was my first time like being in a studio and working on hand modeling and using Photoshop to that extent. So in my time in Barcelona, I felt like as a designer, a lot of things kind of synthesized at this time. So I think one thing I just, I just matured a lot as a designer, just in terms of graphically what reads clearly in drawings. Also my time in Barcelona was probably one of my favorite and also uh, interesting studios that I was a part of. For this studio, we had, there is a big conflict between the squatter community that was in this building that was abandoned by the city, owned by the city, but had not been used. And they'd use this space as this library, this community space, as a space to help some of the elderly. Um, and then there was a lot of conflicts that came between the government and um, the squatters that were here. Fires happened. Um, it was a very chaotic time. Um, so this happened like five days before we entered the country. So we come maybe two days after entering the country and we start a studio and they say, this is your problem. We want you to design for this very politically tense situation. And I was pretty overwhelmed <laughs> when I first had the prompt presented to me. But I think that one way that I, I believe I matured a lot as a designer in that time I think that was one of the first studios where I was not only considering like the aesthetics of a space and how it flows and the different connections, but also thinking about how this space has an impact to be an agent of healing or an agent to bring people together in light of a really tense uh, situation. And I've seen a lot of ways in my professional life and in other ways too, where, you know, there are projects you're working on that aren't necessarily neutral or projects that you're working on where there's a lot of different perspectives or a lot of different parties and forces in play. Um, And as an architect, you have to be able to kind of negotiate those different things, especially in light of the building design and who gets to use it. Uh, So I think as a designer, that was one thing I really took advantage of and did my best to do all that I could while I studied abroad. And then, of course, one thing that I love about Europe is that it's so affordable to travel once you're over there as a young person. Um, The cheapest flight I've ever taken in my life was a one-way flight from Barcelona to London. It was for $18 and it was my carry-on only. 
but I was going to take advantage of that $18 flight because I will never see a price like that in the U.S. So because of that, there were a lot of, yeah, it it was amazing. To this day, I still think about, oh, remember that time I took that $18 flight? I only had my backpack (laughs) and, you know, I did my best to make sure that I didn't get stopped by TSA or, or whatever, but I try to milk that as much as possible but when I've heard people having good fares on the train but not by air okay sometimes by flight was cheaper than plane or sometimes it just made more sense logistically so that was which was surprising to me I thought the train would be cheaper I didn't think mm-hmm. I would be payment that much but that's all to say travel was super affordable I stayed in hostels while I was there and part of the curriculum I was a part of had us do different sketching assignments in different cities that we travel to. So we had to travel to different cities, to different countries as a part of our grade. And in our sketchbook, we had so many pages we had to sketch. Um, So another thing that I took away was just learning how to sketch in a way that shows information and communicates information to other people. Sketching like while you're there and also learning what the different pieces of culture or different pieces of a place that show up in the built environment um, and also just experiencing life in different countries. Although of course, for a short amount of time for some of those, because at longest, maybe like seven days I was in a country, but I think there's a lot of ways you can pick up about kind of the mannerisms of people, the different things that they value and how that plays out in some of their law, how that plays out in some of their buildings, how it plays out in some of the different events that they value. So that was something that I really uh, enjoyed and I really took away from my time in Barcelona. That is amazing. So you are really inspiring me to get back into sketching because I've really gotten away from it. This is the second Um, sketch conversation we've had. Yes. (laughs) And uh, because I follow you on social, social media. So I see your travels and the sketches that you post while you're there. Tell us a little more about this Inktober that you're doing. I've been trying to do, I'm currently behind. So <laughs> sometime Don't after this meeting. Don't beat yourself up. No, you're it's doing okay. It, I told myself <laughs> this is going to be the year I'm going to do all 31 days. So for people who don't know what Inktober is, uh, Inktober is this challenge. I think it started maybe eight, nine, 10 years ago, uh, where basically there's a word, there's a prompt that each day of the month that you're drawing some sort of response to. Traditionally, it's with ink and paper. For ease, for me, I'm using digital art because I have a tablet that I've been wanting to use for a while and get more into working with those different digital tools. And sometimes the words are very random. I think one mm-hmm. word that I did was scurry. And I'm like, I don't know how to draw a scurry. Or <laughs> um, there's another word that's coming up that I still don't know how to draw of the word eagle. I'm like, okay, I could draw a bald eagle, but that's kind of boring. Um, so. For the past two or three years, I've attempted to do it, and then life happens, and it just doesn't happen. So I'm telling myself, this is going to be the year I do all 31 days of Inktober, just also as an exercise so that I can get back into sketching, too. Yeah. Um, And I've had some opportunities with some of my coworkers since this past summer or so, uh, where we went sketching in some local places in the area. So, for instance, we went to Cranbrook. And went there on a Saturday and just sketched for like two, three hours and showed what we have. And also like other sketching exercises I got to do during the Project Pipeline camp this year and in previous years. Um, So I try to keep my chops sharp because a lot of those skills translate into other things. Right. And we had a a real interesting talk in the office, too. Uh, We have these uh, design talks called Design Morsels. 
and Charles Piper out of our uh, Richmond office is part of the Urban Sketchers. And uh, that was just cool to, uh, you know, hear him talk about him joining this group of people. And, and it was later in his career, right? He's, he's older than Sarah and I, you know, he's like, I'm really into sketching now. And it was, it's, it's inspiring to hear other people say they're picking it back up, right? It makes it feel like it's possible for you. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna let Karen start first and then I'll no. <laughs> but I would like to let me too, start yeah. sketching yeah. first. I'm, I'm gonna let you start sketching first, then I'll start. Yeah, maybe we should go sketching sometime, Karen. Maybe when yes, it's we warmer should. outside. We should. I think uh we should take some time and you all can uh get me started up again. I'll I'll get my sketchbooks mm-hmm. out. <laughs> right. Well, can't wait to see it. So what inspired you to go into architecture? So my story, I feel, is not as typical as other people. There were Legos in my household growing up, but they were for my brother. And I, I couldn't play with them because girls don't play with Legos at the time. But also, I wasn't quite interested at the Legos at the time, to be fair. My interest in architecture actually came about while I was in high school. At the time in high school, I was on track to do civil engineering because my mom told me at a very early age you will not go to college for art because artists don't make a lot of money. So I'm like, I'm like, okay, so I can't be an artist because they don't make money. That makes sense. I guess I'll go into engineering because I'm told that engineers make a lot of money and there's not a lot of black engineers. And at my time in high school, there was a um, engineering club that was starting up. Actually, I helped to start up that I joined um, my freshman and sophomore year So I was like at this time going to different colleges, looking at engineering programs, doing civil engineering. Also, I was really good at math and really good at science. And I'm like, okay, I could probably do this. But my junior year of high school, we read this book called Devil in the White City. Side note, there's actually a movie that's coming out that's starting production for it in 2023. So I'm really excited to see like how they translate that. Um, But if you don't know the book, it's about the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. And there are these two storylines that's in the book. There's one storyline where there's this murder mystery where there's a lot of young women coming into the city of Chicago and they're getting murdered by this guy in his basement. And then the other storyline of this book is talking about how they physically built up the World's Fair because a lot of the technology and with how quickly they got the announcement, they built it up in two years. So everyone in my class was interested in the murder mystery, like, oh my gosh, she's killing all these women, all these things are happening. Wow, the drama. And I was the only person in my class that I was like, okay, I there is drama there, but there is so much drama in how these buildings are being built, about you know, the different the Burnham and the different architects who are building up this grounds where the fair is gonna happen. And also, since I'm from Chicago. A lot of the places that were referenced in the book are places that I've visited growing up going to trips. So like the Field Museum, which is our history museum in Chicago, um, is one of the places that was of reference to that book that came out of that fair. And I believe also the Museum of Science and Industry and also some of the different parks that are south from there were the original site. So I never really heard the word architect to be honest, at this point until I read this book. And I'm like, oh, wow, that sounds like it's a great mix of like something that's artistic and something that will engage my creative side. But also it sounds mathy and smart enough that I can do this as a career and that I can have a living off of it. Um, So and your mother will be happy. Yeah. So um, and it got to the point where I um, between my junior and senior year, I was doing our college visit day and 
there is a college visit for the College of Engineering and there is one for the College of Architecture. So my mom said, okay, I'm going to go to the engineering one. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to the architecture one. And we both came back afterwards and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to do architecture. And mom's like, wow, you're going to do engineering. So <laughs> we had to have a little bit of, of talking, but after um, different decisions, um, I ended up doing architecture. And so that's what got me into the profession. And also there are some things like in hindsight, when I like go back and read some things for the book in the white city, uh, some of them are a little problematic or, you know, kind of propping up like whiteness as the pinnacle of society. And they're like evolving from lesser developed communities of like people of color. So like, there's some things in hindsight when I read the book, I'm like, or when I see some of like the different logic of the time uh, from the world's fair, I'm like, Hmm, I don't know if that will quite fly in 2022, but mm -hmm. I think that definitely was the book that got me interested in architecture. It'll be interesting how they address that in the movie. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they come about it. I will yeah, say, I've, I've started that book twice and I have not finished it. I don't. I think it's the murder mystery part that is got because I read it's it. It's getting in the way. It's getting in the way. <laughs> I'm like, I can't read sci-fi. I can't read a lot of stories. So you got to stick to the architecture part. I, yeah, I got to figure out how to dissect it and go back to it. I've started a couple times and I'm like, but the movie, I would definitely probably watch that. Yeah, <laughs> that might be easier to digest. Now, I will say that is what got me into architecture, um, what sustained me in architecture, because I feel I've talked to a lot of architecture students in school and outside of school. You always have that moment. Oh, my gosh. Do I want to do architecture after you come back from that review that just like you got torn to shreds or like you just were working for like 18 hours and you're like, do I really want to do this major? So there are a lot of times that, you know, I have to have reasons to sustain myself if this is going to be the thing I'm choosing. And I think there are a lot of times when I was in school, when I was working on projects, kind of going back to the idea of like caring for a community and being involved. Um, a lot of my projects, I really cared a lot about like how the different people are interacting with the spaces and, and how can you design good spaces for these people that are living their lives in these buildings. And I often found myself like the only person, I don't want to make it super extreme, but there oftentimes I was one of the few, if not the only one thinking about the community impacts of the spaces that I'm designing. So I think those kind of things to sustain me into architecture about building up places and building up people in the process. Wow. That's some of the things that we've been seeing across the different interviews that we've been doing that a lot of people of color, um, a lot of African-Americans have come into this profession because they're trying to make a change in their community. Right? I see how my community is and how can this profession helped me change that. It's, it's like that passion for uplift and repair. It seems like that is a theme that is throughout our profession when people of my color and minorities come into the profession. And to hear you say that, that you also did that when you traveled. Did you see that when you traveled as well? Like when you were in Barcelona, like the other designers alongside of you that are from there, that they have that same passion or where you kind of did you stand out because of that? When I think back to that specific studio that I was a part of, that uh, semester of studio, I think there was a good handful of people in my studio, some of the Americans that were in the group with me, who were kind of thinking of the impact of like the space and the people and how the people were interacting with the space or like the, the tensions and scars left behind that. So, um, and I think that was across different ethnic and cultural lines. So there are people in my group who are white Americans, um, someone else who's 
Black American, also some international students from China or from Taiwan, which they also have their own kind of history and present history of a lot of different political tensions too. Um, so I think that there were some people within the English speaking group that I definitely saw um, that kind of dynamic. I unfortunately didn't get to see too many studios with some of the other Spanish students. And that was in part because, well, Spanish in that like students who came to the university, the school, it's ETSAV. I'm going to butcher the pronunciation because my Spanish is kind of rusty. But um, for the ETSAV school, they have students that are not only from Spain, but also from France, from Belgium, from a lot of other European countries. But those classes are mainly taught in Spanish. But of one or two reviews that I did get to sit in that were in Spanish. So I think there was still a lot of um, a lot that I was understanding Spanish with a mix of Catalan. So those reviews that I saw of some students, I think it was maybe like a thought in the beginning, but I don't know how much of it was kind of core to how the design kind of birthed out of it. I would think it was more of like acknowledging that this happened and here's this design. Mm -hmm. And of course, I can only be speaking from a very limited view because I've only probably saw like one or two reviews in the architecture school that were not in English. I'm sure there's a greater breadth of other projects that probably did have that vantage point, but just something that I probably couldn't capture, especially if students were presenting on Catalan, because I, I only know like three words in that language, unfortunately. <laughs> you already beat me there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's interesting, though, too. Um, we've had this discussion, like, I, I, you know, I've heard people to give acknowledgments to, you know, indigenous people for their land. But like you said, but do you come back and birth some things that actually help repair and mend some of the things that happen? That's like two different things, right? Um, yeah. So that's a, that's a great point that you brought up. And to hear it in a global context. Thank you for the peep. I appreciate, you know, the, the view into that. Because I was like, I was not able to study abroad. So to hear from you, it's been, it's been great to get that, get that insight. So, I mean, you've had a lot um, that's happened. <laughs> I had to say for your age, I had to date myself, but uh, <laughs> 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 you have had a lot that happened over your career, but can you, you know, back up a little bit? I know you said you came from University of Illinois, you um, came to U of M and then you started your career. So tell us a little bit about any issues or any uh, obstacles you had in either of the two schools of design? Um, and then tell us, uh, then you can, we can go into your professional career, how you kind of started there. Yeah, so I would say overall, I haven't experienced too many barriers. And what I mean by that is professionally when I began, like my first architecture firm I worked for was this Black woman, Ramona Westbrook, who took a chance on me and employed me right out of college. So even in the context of working professionally, my first experience of working in the profession is under like a black woman, like in a smaller firm. And I think because of that, I, I have talked to other of my friends who are black or come from different backgrounds or are women, they find themselves like being a cad monkey or pigeonholed into a, a certain role or different aggressions that they may experience in the workplace. But I think I've been very glad in my professional walk that I haven't encountered that. And even with being at uh, Quinn Evans, having like you there, Sandra, and then other trusted people, um, I think that that's helped a lot, I think, to mitigate um, some of that. I think some challenges that had existed in some of my different 
schoolings. And I'm sure there'll be other people who have probably said this on other episodes, um, but if they went to a majority white institution, both of my schools were, um, we were probably one of the only few black, black people. From my graduating class from undergrad, there were three black people, including myself, and I roomed with both of them during my college <laughs> experience. So <laughs> it's just a very, very, uh, very small pool. Three out of how many, Sarah? Of the graduating class, there were 100. Okay. Similar to, to Michigan when I was there. Yep. Actually, at Michigan, that was, that was the most Black people I saw with <laughs> 10 of us. <laughs> wow. But I think that was maybe out of like three, 400. The 10 out of 400? It Was that undergrad and grad? I think that include undergrad and grad. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like okay. statistically, so that's, probably, that's actually probably fewer than when I was there. Yeah. I was about to say statistically, it's probably about the same as like my undergrad experience, if not less. But I think some of that goes back to access to the profession, like people, one, sure. knowing about architecture, because for myself, I didn't even know it was a profession until I read that book. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my first architect that I met was sometime in college. I think when I took an architecture class. This is the first time I met an architect. The first time I met a Black architect, it wasn't until my junior year when I went to my first NOMA conference in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. Which I think that was in 2013 or so. Oh, you were wow. there? I yeah. was there too. I, yeah. missed that. I missed that year. That was the year after our conference in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. 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 So like, I, some of it just goes back to like, I don't know how many people of color are aware of the profession. I think also some numbers reflect that. And then also like, in terms of just access to the profession as a student. There are many ways that architecture is a really good education and a really good degree to get. But if you don't have the finances, it's really difficult to get it, especially yeah. with like how much time intensive that it is. I know there are also, generally speaking, a lot of students in color are probably working full-time in addition to being a student full-time. I know there are times that I'd have to take out different loans or different things I'm still paying back, uh, even to be able to get the materials to design things for architecture school that still affect me to this day. Nobody so, tells you about all the materials you have to buy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm like, if someone would have told me to set aside a couple thousand for these materials, then I think I would be in a, you know, it would be a much uh, <laughs> better situation. I mean, that and software and, uh, you know, computer hardware you have to have is, it's a lot you did. I didn't know, like you said, I mean, because you didn't know about the profession. It's the, it's the same. It's like I'm researching architects to figure out what they are versus knowing someone I could talk to to tell me all oh, these are the ends and all. Right. Yeah. And that makes a big difference going into something. It's almost like book smarts versus actual kind of, you know, real life practical knowledge. And they're not writing that in text. Right. Oh, yeah. You're going to need all of this money for to build money. Get your pretty you money for right. your pages. Yeah, did not get, oh, right. uh, did not get any of that. Yeah, yeah. Printing for projects, getting ready for presentations. Mm-hmm. Oh, that rendering software, it would be mm-hmm. nice if you mm-hmm. know how to use that because everybody yeah. else is using it, right? Mm-hmm. It's hard to get that if you don't have the exposure. And like I said, that's the great thing that has come from, now let's talk about your work with Noma Pipeline, right? It's like giving those students that information, that one-on-one time that we did not get when we were coming to the profession. So do you want to talk about your work with that normal Detroit? Yeah. Just to give like a little background to inform my involvement with NOMA now, because there were only like three Black students <laughs> in my undergrad graduating class, 
I think there are a lot of times where like, I had mentioned that I'm working on these different designs, a lot of things that I'm thinking about community or, you know, I've never seen an architect that looked like me. And I was talking with, I don't remember if it was with my dean at the time or one of my professors, Catherine Anthony, which I, I love her so much. Um, but she mentioned that there was a NOMAS chapter and I'm like, what's a NOMAS? Uh, so I learned that there's this architecture organization uh, with people of color, uh, people from different backgrounds there. And I'm like, oh, sign me up. So uh, they took us to our first NOMA conference. And that was the first time that, as I mentioned, that I saw like an architect color, like an architect that looked like me. And I can only explain it as it feels like it's a family reunion if all my family members were architects. Uh, and despite really knowing nobody <laughs> except my roommate and other girl that I came with when we were trying to start up our chapter, there were a lot of people that I felt that they would have my back or I knew that they would want to support me in some way. Um, so since that time, I've been involved in NOMA and NOMAS in different capacities. And when I came to Detroit finally, and I think it was 2019, I was asked by Brian Cook, who was the then president of the NOMA Detroit chapter, um, if I wanted to take point for uh, the Project Pipeline camp. Um, and for the people that don't know what Project Pipeline is, Project Pipeline uh, is an initiative that was put on by NOMA, I think back in 2002, 2003 or so, um, with the goal to get architecture exposed to more students of color so that they go into architecture and creating that pipeline or that infrastructure um, so that there could be a student from like elementary year through their high school year and through their college. And when they enter the profession, um, for them to increase the number of people of color, people from dis disadvantaged backgrounds into the profession of architecture so that we can get past uh, this 2% and 1% and 0.05% of like licensed architects from these different ethnic backgrounds. That's what Project Pipeline is. Oftentimes across the US, it manifests itself as a, an architecture camp. Um, there are some other places where Project Pipeline, there are different parts of the pipeline that are built out in terms of things that are done during the school year or different activities between high school students and college students. So I was asked back in 2019 if I wanted to take the point for the Project Pipeline camp. Now this is coming after I was finishing up my fellowship uh, that I had at the time through the University of Michigan where I was doing research and also teaching an architecture studio for high school students in the Detroit public school system. So I'm like, oh yeah, I've worked with high school students. They're cool. So <laughs> I decided to take it on. And it was, I think this was the first year that the camp was going to be a five-day camp. There was a lot of different planning and things that went into that, but as, as much hard work goes into leading that camp, I think it's always very rewarding on the other end of it. Um, when you see students with a variety of backgrounds, be able to defend and talk about their work. Some of these students know about architecture and they just get further confirmation that like, this is what I wanna do. And then some students are like, my mom signed me up for this. I don't know what this is. And now I gotta do this for a week. And some of them also really come out of it, considering this like as a path that they can go down um, in the future. And then some students do it and they're like, hey, you know, I enjoyed it, but you know, this architecture thing isn't for me. And I think that's also, a win, even if they don't continue in the profession. Um, I think for them to know and be exposed to architecture, um, and at least to talk about it more so that when their friends are like, oh, like, what do architects do? They at least have some knowledge to be able to share about that. Yeah. Exposing people to, you know, you know, to be even relative to architecture, right? It's like, oh, I know who can solve that problem. I know 
what type of profession to direct you to if you're interested in versus us we wouldn't if, if we, were, we were coming up we wouldn't be able to in high school to direct anybody towards that career because it's like yeah yeah I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out you know what it is you know it's like, it's right. like so. and even giving them the letting them know that they can have some say in the design and development of their communities yeah so you started in 2019 with project pipeline yeah. Okay. And that was an in-person camp. Yep. What was it like moving into a virtual? I camp? feel like everything. 2020. Yeah. Everything. There was so much happening in 2020. There was, it feels like it was like 20 years ago. Because <laughs> <laughs> everything that happened, like at the time that we were transitioning to do the camp virtually, it was also the time that like our work was transitioning to work remote, which is also the same time that as I mentioned before, I'm really involved in leadership in my church. So we're transitioning to figure out how to do church virtually in terms of like the Sunday gatherings and like the weekly gatherings. So there was just a, a lot of um, figuring out how to do virtual and do that transition in such a short amount of time. It was a little hard, I will say, to make the, to go through the transition, but I think that there was a good amount of resources from Noma National, which I think helped a lot. And also people locally who were open and willing to try out this virtual camp <laughs> that we were doing and also making some changes because when we've done it in person, we've usually done it from nine to five, have no problem, be the kids in the middle. Um, but being on a computer screen, staring for eight, nine hours straight for an adult is difficult. Imagine doing that as a high school student with less of an attention span. So with some different pivots that we had to make for the camp still surprised that we, I think actually our largest number of students who were involved with the camp in a year was both in 2020 and 2021. And some of that is, you know, for better or for worse, like there's a wider net of people we're able to reach. So I recall in the 2020 camp, we had a student from Canada. Uh, we had some students from Wisconsin. Most of, most of them are from Michigan, but uh, you know, some people like they know somebody who knows somebody in a different state and they send it to them. And, and yeah, my niece them. and nephew are the ones in Wisconsin. So yeah, I was going to say, I they think really Karen, enjoyed it. <laughs> Karen, yeah. So, you know, I'm always surprised that like with how it worked, given the pivot and it was like the first time teaching virtually because I've taught architecture studios, like I said, to high school students, but that was in person. And yeah. I've also taught this camp in person. So making that pivot to virtual. And I think some of that also helped too because for better or for worse, because a lot of the things that I was leading or I was participating in were also making their transition to virtual. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that I can kind of take from this pool of like, oh, this really works yeah. well, or like that kind of fell flat. Let's not do this for the camp. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I think that kind of helps um, with the camp. But yeah, we did do it virtual 2020 and 2021, but it was really exciting to be back in person this past year in 2022. Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do 
more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. What they consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to, we have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. So now on to our Detroit City of Design Spotlight. So we are um, going to kind of talk about Black churches and history of Black churches in Detroit. A lot of um, the information that we are going to uh, share with the spotlight comes from the 20th Century Civil Rights Sites Project um, that was done here in Detroit back in, well, completed in 2019. And now there are two new churches added to the list of churches on his National Historic Register because of that project. Uh, and it just shows the uh, importance of the churches to civil rights history here in Detroit. It's very similar to what it, what it is in the, city, in the South. And we, and we think that, um, that it's kind of leading to very similar to Atlanta and how you go visit um, Martin Luther King's house. You go down the street and then this Ebenezer church uh, and you can actually tour these facilities and really start to get the context of history um, that are, are told through these buildings. And it's, it's leading that same way in Detroit, right? We have a very famous site that uh, a lot of people have visited here in Detroit. It's the um, Second Baptist Church in Greektown, downtown. And the Detroit Visitors Bureau um, actually has that listed as a, a site for people to come see and tour. Um, they give a great tour and um, lecture about how that site was used to hide individuals coming from the south to the north to escape slavery into Canada, which is right across the river from us. And that church is the mother church to a lot of churches that also sprang out of Detroit. Um, it is also a church that has an addition that was done in a brutal style by one of our trailblazer architects, Nathan Johnson. Nathan Johnson also did Bethel Me, right? Here. Yeah. Nathan Johnson did the, as you said, Sandra, the addition to Second Baptist Church in Greektown. Uh, and we talk a lot about, if you go to our website, you can read a lot about Nathan Johnson. Uh, and on our social media, you can see some of the clips from the interviews we did with him. He was also the architect for Bethel AME Church, which is not far from uh, Second Baptist Church. Second Baptist and Bethel, I believe, are the two oldest Black congregations in Michigan. And Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church is part of the AME denomination, which was founded by Richard Allen uh, in Philadelphia in the 1700s. Bethel AME Church is home to the oldest Black-owned credit union wow. in the state. 
and home to Barry Gordy, the founder of Motown. That was his family's church. Yeah, the whole girl. Uh, and a lot yeah. of well-known uh, people uh, in Detroit attended, uh, have attended Bethel. A lot of great history there. This is not their first location. There are a couple other locations prior to this one. Uh, and on future episodes or in our future writings, we'll talk about urban renewal and how these churches had to move. But Bethel AME Church is uh, another one of those deep in the civil rights movement, along with Shrine of the Black Madonna and uh, New Bethel Baptist Church. Yeah, yeah. And Sandra is instrumental in uh, the historic designations, I believe, for those two. Yeah, the uh, Shrine of Black Madonna and New Bethel AME Churches are right down the street from each other. Shrine of Black Madonna was founded by uh, Reverend Clegg, and it's on Linwood Street. They're both on Linwood Street, um, like I said, right down the street from each other. So you can almost say <laughs> these two pastors coming together to actually help get the Walk of Freedom in Detroit in 1963 was almost like two extremists coming together to, in order to make this happen, right? Uh, Reverend Clegg was very uh, militant in his preaching, not as militant as, as Malcolm X, but he was very pro-Black. And then um, Reverend C.L. Franklin, which is Aretha Franklin's father, was a pastor of New Bethel, which is down the street. And both of them um, basically uh, worked with the Poor People's Campaign and got uh, Reverend Martin Luther King to come to Detroit and give uh, his first version of I Have a Dream speech before he went to Washington, D.C. So that important history uh, was highlighted uh, with this civil rights project. Um, And then also at Shrine of Black Madonna, there's this legendary painting of the Black Madonna that's in the sanctuary. And it kind of relates back to our episode one with Kim Dowdell. Her uncle painted that painting um, on the wall, which had a great controversy to it. Glayton Dowdell was the um, artist who painted that. And after he painted, he literally had to leave the country because it was so much uh, political kickback from that painting. So like I said, Shrine of Black Madonna was at the forefront of pushing um the black agenda within the church. So, uh, like I said, very different than down the street at New Bethel Church by with uh, Reverend um, Franklin as a pastor. Different type of pastor. He was very kind of southern in his uh, his style and delivery in, in, in the church. And Martin Luther King visited Bethel AME so many times. I mean, he was like a regular guest there. Him and Reverend C.L. Franklin were, were good friends um, as time went on. And that church is also has a history uh, connected to Nathan Johnson, the black architect that we mentioned. He actually did that adaptive reuse of an old theater into that church. Like Karen said, it's just like you start to see the connection of how important the black church is as a community, but that that connection also led to the first kind of commission for black architects. That's the community they came from. So just a connection back and uh, the importance to Detroit's fabric as all of these African-Americans are coming to the, from the south to the north uh, to settle and, and make a life here and really make their home here. So, Yeah, with the recent PBS special uh, with uh, Dr. Henry Louis Gates about Black churches and the importance of Black churches in our community and in the civil rights movement and throughout the history of this country, people are starting to explore Black churches more, explore the history of Black churches more, 
And, you know, just thinking about, you know, when we take architecture tours to Europe and we want to explore architecture, we one of the first places that we go is to the churches yeah. um, to understand what went on in the cities and the countries there and learn about the histories there. We can do the same thing with the churches here in Detroit. And it is so important for church historians. Yeah. Uh, church leadership to keep good records and to tell the stories about the things that, you know, went on in your churches, not only during the civil rights movement and before, but, you know, continue to tell those stories about the things you're doing in the community um, so that people will know the great things that are going on. Yeah, I think the the role of the Black historian is going to be the next thing that kind of comes to the forefront, too. I mean, we need to save places and spaces that are uh, related to our history. Definitely. And we need these buildings here, like you said, uh, hopefully like the great, great cathedrals, we will be going through uh, some of these, uh, a lot of them are mid-century modern churches, but they will be mm-hmm. very similar to that same parallel that you were talking about. It's just so, so many uh, layers of things. Like a, a lot of people don't know that the first uh, nation of Islam, Mosque, Mosque number one, was here in Detroit as well. He founded here in Detroit. It's on, yeah. it's on Linwood as well. And Black architects, many times the first uh, clients that they got were Black churches because that in the community, that's where the money was. You know, people donate their funds to help grow their churches, donate funds to the church to do work in the community. Yes. And that was... Um, a repository for larger funds in the community. And uh, they hired black architects to design their spaces. So we also have an interview with Michigan Radio about uh, Donald White, who's the first black architect in Michigan. And uh, one of the churches that he designed that still stands here in Detroit. And we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, he and Francis Griffin yep. also designed churches here in Detroit, the first and second black architects in Michigan. Yeah, we can also put in the show notes the uh, 20th Century Civil Rights Sites Project. You can look up more on that. Uh, the Michigan Shippo Office was the, you know, kind of funder that started that project with the National Park Service uh, African-American Heritage Fund. And thankful for programs like that that are starting to fund a lot more projects and saving a lot more spaces like that here in Detroit. So let's get back to uh, Sarah and uh, hear a little bit more about how this fits into the context of architecture. So uh, how did you get into teaching in general? Like, How did you get to that high school? Was it with art prep and University of Michigan that you were working with high school students? So you're, you're coming out of your master's program. And how did that happen? Yeah. So my well this is a part of where I feel like Detroit chose me because when I was coming out of grad school I was trying to go back to Chicago but just a lot of different things landed in my lap to be in Detroit and there were two different things I was for a job after school that I was looking towards one was actually for a challenge Detroit uh, which I actually had made mm-hmm. it to um, the semi-finalists round so I was actually that was one thing I was seriously considered pursuing and the other option was um, with this fellowship. It's called the Michigan Mellon Fellowship for Egalitarianism and the Metropolis. And so it is a mouthful, um, but it's a program that <laughs> set, <laughs> it's a program that University of Michigan got through Mellon Foundation, where there are different fellows who come 
and they do part of their research as a part of their fellowship. And also the other part of the fellowship is teaching, teaching this ARC prep program, uh, which is a semester long architecture studio that's a part of their school day. So we usually get students either for their morning session or for our afternoon session. Um, and they go through an architecture studio Monday through Friday. It's a part of their school curriculum. Um, so that's what brought me into it. And I've also had other opportunities to work with younger people. So even when I was in grad school, I volunteered with Arc Prep um, as a student, taught a class for incoming international architecture grad students at University of Michigan. So I had some TA experience there. Also, when I was in undergrad, I led a, a program at the Museum of Science and Industry um, where I, I, we would teach do different science lessons um, to kids like three to five years old in different neighborhoods and schools in the city. So I've had different experience like working with younger people and teaching in some way. This was my first time kind of doing it as like a full-on teacher for like as my job. But in addition to teaching, as I mentioned, I was doing research. And that research was a continuation of my thesis in grad school um, on the Black church. Uh, so it was it was interesting to kind of find that balance between having some time to work towards research and having opportunities to talk about it. Teaching college is very different from teaching high school. Teaching high school, the students want their grades every single day. And my time, and I'm sure if you guys have gone through architecture school and you know this, sometimes you don't know your grade until the end of the semester. Right. So <laughs> there was definitely a I don't know what, what my, my son's going to do when he gets to college because he freaks out whenever the grade board is not updated with his grade. Yes. Like, I don't know what my grade is. Even <laughs> even if it wasn't like a week we didn't upgrade, the students are like, hey, so what's my grade in the class? And we're like, you know, right now you're taking a class that's a college level intensity of work, which mm -hmm. would include that. It won't get updated as recently, but, you know, because of um, wanting to report back to the schools, there was some rhythm of regularity we had to update. Um, so that definitely was like a, a culture shock that I wasn't aware of, despite I'm not that far off from being in high school, but I don't know if I like freaked out about my grades like that. But a lot of students do that. A lot of parents do as well to make sure that the kids are doing well, which I think is a good thing. So I kind of fell into it because the opportunity opened up for this fellowship. I'm the teaching this way. And I also had other opportunities in the past to. Um, so, so you were able to talk to students in the art prep about your thesis research? So were they interested in that? Were you able to? I don't think I had too many students interested okay. in it. Um, I mean, I did talk about it with them. I did present it with them. Sometimes, you know, you may just have like some high school students that are like, oh, the teacher is talking about something firm. I don't know if that's the most right. interesting. It's Charlie Brown voice. Wah, 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 wah. I don't hear anything she's saying. Yeah. Um, so for the research in particular, they, I don't think too many of them really lit up about it. Not that it was bad research. It's just that it wasn't like, I don't think it was the thing that they're the most it's interested in. It's not what they're in. interested in. Yeah. But I think yeah. there were good conversations I did have for students who came, who were involved like in a black church context, which was a good amount of the students kind of talking about their experience and what did they know about like the spaces that they would go to when they would attend a church gathering. So you've mentioned your church quite a bit and now you've you've got this research about black churches and our podcast uh, is doing what Sandra calls the how to get away with murder reverse timeline. So when we started Noir Design Party, we started our presentations looking at our trailblazer generation 
and then coming to the current generation. This podcast is going from the present day generation back to the trailblazer generation. We'll talk about the trailblazers in future seasons that we have for the podcast because we're going to have more than one season. (laughs) So a lot of our trailblazer architects got a lot of work from Black churches. That is how a lot of Black architects started their, their firms. Uh, that's how they got a majority of their commissions and their work. Um, so you are doing research on Black churches. So tell us a little bit about what you're researching and, and why you're doing that. Yeah, sure thing. And I will say I've had a lot more opportunities in recent times to talk about my research. And uh, it's becoming even more apparent that um, I need to create an essay or a video or a podcast or something so that yeah. I can send this to other people. Because there have been many people that are like, oh, I'd love to hear about your research. I said, you know, you can guest blog on our Noir Design Party yes. uh, uh, yes. website. We'll take your first write up, put it on there and post it with the podcast if you want us to. So if you get us something. Black churches are a pillar of the culture. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people are interested. Yeah. So. It first began with a curious thought when I was in my thesis time in grad school and trying to figure out like, what do I want to study and like, what I want my project to be about. And I was thinking, oh, it might be good to do something in Detroit. And I was talking with one of my friends who he's white, but he's like, yeah, it's like so weird that there's like three, four, five churches on every single block in Detroit. And I never thought that was weird because I came from Chicago, which also had three, four, five on a block. So I think there are some times where I'm like, huh, I didn't realize that that's a weird phenomenon. I didn't realize that's like unusual because that's not uncommon to see that in a lot of places where you see a lot of Black Americans or even just people in like the African diaspora across the world, like even in like London and other places, it's not uncommon to see something like that, especially in a city. So that kind of led me thinking about like, oh, this Black church, there is something interesting about space and the buildings that they use that you have a condition where you can have three, four, five Black churches on one block, and there doesn't seem to be a conflict, at least on the surface. And when I reflected a lot about my architecture education and architecture history and the different things that were kind of exalted or important for us to study, uh, many times when there, when it came to religious architecture, specifically about churches, um, many times we learned about either churches that were these gorgeous, big Catholic cathedrals, or uh, you see some mid-century church design, which are all very important, but almost exclusively, all of them are from white architects, um, which is not, once again, it's not a bad thing. But it kind of goes back to some of the issue with the profession. Like if only 2% of the profession is African-American, how do they know how the Black church is using space? Like how Mm -hmm. that's not even something that comes up in a conversation as a space to be saved or as a space that's important to talk about. And I mean, they're almost like preach over here. I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I mean, mean, you have so many instances, even when I hear the story of other churches, even Bethel AME that's on Warren in Detroit. Um, I think they were in a different location before they came to where they're at. And there are relocations, really yeah, a lot of relocations, before. sometimes yeah. some churches like their buildings got knocked down. Sometimes their buildings were burned because of different like racial aggressions that happened towards just being black and existing. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of my research had 
some different aims in mind. Uh, the first thing was to talk about the Black church, the history of the Black American church in context to different periods in time and what types of building typologies were big at that time, like what there was a, a large proliferation of. Um, and even just like a small snippet. And sometimes it feels bad to kind of reference things starting at slavery because because I think this also is coming from a lot of conversations I've had uh, with people about faith, specifically Christian faith and like different feelings of it being like a white man's religion. Um, but mm -hmm. a lot of like the church comes from the Middle East and comes from people from Africa. And there are other African theologians that have existed for a long time. But anyway, there are many times that these spaces aren't being talked about. So in the American context, sometimes with like the start of slavery, you see a lot of like the house church model or kind of being an invisible institution where it's a very protected space because for those who understood that the faith that was in the Bible was different from the faith from some of their slave masters and, you know, being caught because of that came at a real risk of their safety and security. So a lot of the churches were pretty hidden at that time, which might be compared to, you know, different from like the great um, migration where you had a lot of Black people were able to go to different cities and kind of move out of the South and go to like cities like Chicago, Detroit, California, yes. New York. And when that happened, um, you start to have a case where churches being able to take an existing space and to transform it into um, the gathering space that they have. Adaptive then, reuse, right? Yeah, a lot of just like <laughs> naturally a lot of adaptive reuse coming with that, but also right. it being a layered space. And what I mean by layered space is that it's not just a church building where people gather on Sundays, but because a lot of times you have like a lot of black people just didn't have access or weren't really heard in the spaces they're at. The black church was the school, the black church was the job center, the black church was on uh, the place where um, organizing happened, the black church was a grocery store. There's a lot of ways that, as Karen said earlier, like the black church has for a very long time been like the center of black life in America. When I think about that research, that's one part of the research where you're talking about uh, the different building typologies and kind of how they're lining up in different points of history. And then from that, pulling out the five tenets of what I'm calling as Black church design. Of course, these are things that are being worked on, but it's kind of where I've landed in my research so far. And by these, very cool. Yeah, it's cool to look at it as a thesis. I can see my son totally doing this as a thesis project, though. It's like interesting <laughs> to hear you talk about it. Yeah, I mean, one day, one day we'll partner with something. I'm very certain for that. With uh, me so, and Trey, uh, the three of us, Sandra, Trey, and I, have gone to uh, St. Stephen AME Church. Oh, okay. In Detroit, designed by a black architect. Uh, we toured that one Saturday. Black architects. Black architects. Ah. Yes, <laughs> black architects. Thank you. And uh, we're looking to go to another. So we will invite you on the yeah. tour when I hear back from the pastor to see when we can come out. I would love to go. Yeah. 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 That would be fun. We, we have come across what we, we see, like what you just got to talk about, right? You have the different typologies of the Black church. But we saw where the Black architect started to interact with the Black church was doing the Great Migration, right? Mm -hmm. So that was mm -hmm. like... That came across in our our research, like, oh, this is how their practices were built, right? It's like yeah. just to, and and if you think about it, we're talking about like not knowing who an architect was, so you know they had that same barrier. Mm -hmm. But these are people who are being the first, right? Yeah. We're talking about two percent; they're talking about zero. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and 
they're they're the first coming out. So you have to think about, okay, half of them come out of school being the first to graduate. So where are they going to work? Mm-hmm. So they 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 can't find firms to work for. So they start their own firm, right? So then if they're starting their own firms, where are they going to get work from? So if you have the black community is starting just to build wealth. Yep. Wealth in the black community is in the black church because that is the community hub where people landed when coming from the South to the North Yeah. to start to organize, to start to set up their communities. It, it just blows my mind of how important it is as a pillar to our community. And then don't get me started on how me and my son have the discussions about how it is losing its importance today. Oh, yeah. I can't even believe that that's happening because of how important it was to the early African-American culture. And also important to American history, too, Yeah, Um, because there are a lot of ways that when you think about the civil rights movement, it would not exist if there was no black church Um, or even when you think about things with like reconstruction and all the different like building of bridges that happened during that time and different churches partnering with that or um so there's and i think even like current day there's still a lot of black churches that are doing really great work um and and, and part of when i was getting through the research of like looking at like some of those like the building typologies and those different five tenets and getting to okay where what is the typology for the black church at this time some of it is kind of responding to like you you're starting to see a little bit of that in time when you see some of the newer social justice movements like Black Lives Matter and recently, um, it's the first time where there's like a Black-led social justice movement that is not led by the church. Yeah. Um, which I think, mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's some things that the church needs to reflect on. I think that's yeah. something that they, you know, it's not it's not just like a, a one-way street. I think it's something the church needs to reflect on. But also, you know, I think also how we are understanding the role of the church. And I think one thing that kind of led to like, what is that next point when looking at my research is, there became like a period in time where geographically speaking, there were some people who were attending churches, but not living in the surrounding area. So there was some disconnect to the community that was there, which is a pretty strong part of like the fabric of the black church of its expression of faith is pretty, not only very horizontal of like, God is really big um, here, but also pretty horizontal of like how to meet the needs of other people. Mm-hmm. So when you start to have some of the upward mobility and, you know, I'm also a part of this too. Like I, I was raised in the suburbs and like my family's church that they founded on 95th street in Chicago, which is just like this huge major thoroughfare. Um, there are many times that we com- commuted back to that church because we had um, relational ties to the church. And yeah, it's just something that it can be difficult to have impact on different places, not physically being there. Yeah. Um, and I think there are other yeah, things. what happens to those neighborhoods around those churches when right. everybody's moving, right. moving out? I mean, yeah. that's what we're starting to see. I know in the city of Detroit, uh, what we're starting to see. So, yeah, our, our culture has to look at that. You have to yeah. look at yeah. the effect of what has happened. What is what has uplift mobility done for us? Uh, it's almost the same as desegregation. Right. It's a repeat pattern that we need to be aware of to say, oh, wait a minute. There's there is something happening that is changing our culture. And what does that mean? Yeah. And not only like the moving to like, that's like one aspect that kind of led to like, what's the next move. But I think even just like some different, I don't know if trends is the right word, like trends in the church at the time, like as church design and spaces got bigger, when you're designing for like these mega churches and you're designing for like hundreds and thousands to be in a stadium, uh, the experience becomes a lot more like horizontal 
And like, I can just come in, have a great experience and then walk out and never interact with anybody. Yeah. Um, whereas yeah, like, I think, amazing. yeah. Whereas I think like historically, I think one thing, once again, that was strong with the church is that ability to be able to interact with other people, know your neighbor, know the person that's there. It's not just like I'm coming in to receive something and it's transactional, um, but there's like something that is also in this. So when thinking about like what that new typology would be, it's it's aware of some of the different trends or things that have been happening over time and the evolution of those things. Um, but also thinking about like spatially how to respond to that in a way that would be beneficial for the culture of the congregation, the culture of the people that they're there to serve. And also like what can be beneficial for like a sustainable, long lasting church culture because of some of the black churches that survive sounds like it's like world war seven but of some of like black churches that exist particularly in cities but definitely like in different rural or uh, suburban places some of the smaller ones have a hard time um staying and surviving and some of it is like you have one church that might have like 10 15 people with this massively huge historic space or this massively right. huge like mm-hmm. adaptive reuse space it's just get really expensive to care i think that's even like some other churches that i've been in conversation with in detroit trying to get funding for different places to help to be a little more sustainable in the building that they have that's also like another thing that's in play and thinking about like what that typology could be kind of might respond to that of having like a shared model of experience um, so mm-hmm. at least from like a financial standpoint, it's like, well, some of the resources are shared. Um, also like from a more like communal standpoint as well, like you're interacting with people from different places, you're rooted in a place and there's a little more of that connection that's there. So, yeah, you have a lot of, you mentioned a lot of these churches that are in older buildings and they have really small congregations because a lot of the people that attend there maybe live in that community and haven't moved from that community. Yep. But I'm thinking about how church used to be. We would go to church on Sunday morning and then maybe you would have dinner with your church community after the first service. And then in the afternoon, you have another service. So you could be in church all day and then you have events during the week. So church is, was really uh, central to the community and to people's growth and identity. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the design of churches, the more traditional churches that we see? And you mentioned the megachurch mm-hmm. and how it, the church design has changed so much to look more like an auditorium. You don't have the long pews anymore. You have individual seats and uh, you don't have the, the pulpit anymore. It's more like an auditorium stage. So can you talk a little bit about that evolution? I think that's something that I would I would love to kind of not only because some of the different things when talking about black church it's not just a trend that's only in like churches with black people like this could be yeah. a trend that's seen in like the immigrant church trend that's seen like in white churches and Latino mm-hmm. churches and some of it there is maybe that move where some of the spaces that are used may be framed in a more consumeristic way kind of like I'm coming here for an experience I'm coming here to receive something which I don't know if it's like you know it's not completely like an evil thing like oh how dare they care about the user experience like I think, like it's, it's you, this would be something to consider but I think it is mindful to think about like how these different spaces are coming from maybe like what's in the air of the time 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also when talking about some of the different building typologies, when talking about different points in history, that's only talking about building typologies that are most prevalent in that time or you see a lot, a lot of. It doesn't mean that like there are only like house churches in like antebellum times. Like there's still house churches today. Or it doesn't right. mean that like right. doesn't mean there weren't mega churches like post-Civil War. There are like earlier mega churches as early as like the 20s or even like the late 1800s um, with some of like the first black congregation, some of the first AME churches would be considered a mega church with right. like how many people were attending at the time. Um, mm-hmm. So even with like the change of different ways spaces are being used, I would love to explore it more because it can be difficult to talk about that, knowing that there's like different typologies in one era that could be existing. So like there's still storefront churches, new builds, historic old building, like 100, 200 year old buildings, house church meeting outside. So all those typologies are still happening at the same time and how they're responding to, once again, like what's kind of like in the air at the time, have more influence on that. So yeah, I, I will admit, I think there's a lot more I can learn about that or a lot more I'd love to dig into that. And also just want to have more time just to commit to. Well, you got to work, study, study for exams. You you don't have time for (laughs) (laughs) So I guess quickly tell us about the the five tenets that you. Yeah. Yeah. So these five tenets. And once again, like some of these are, you could probably see these in different church designs. So it's not just exclusive to black churches for some of these. Some of them are. But I think these are things that are unique and distinct. Um, that you'll see in a lot of different Black churches across denomination lines and traditions. Uh, so the first tenet being that the church must respond, has to respond to the street edge or respond to the current moment or respond to the people. As I was saying, the church, it's not like a neutral party. There's many times where, like, when people came up during uh, the Great Migration, like, people needed jobs, people needed to be educated, people needed clothes for jobs. And many times the church is responding to that. Um, but I think even like in the ways that like building design, I think also can be responsive to like how close is the church to a street edge? Like what public spaces are around there? And was that responding to the community that's there? So that's like the first thing that the church must respond. Um, the second tenet being that the church must use light and passive design for gathering spaces. I think across different building typologies, whether it's like a house church, mega church, a storefront or like a, another space that's being adapted for it. Um, light has always been something that's been important. Um, sometimes like like no natural light. Um, sometimes there will be like a flood of natural light. Sometimes lights being used as cues for different parts of like the worship experience or for whatever else that the space is being used for, if not for like a Sunday gathering or whatever, whenever their gathering day is. And I think also using passive design I'm, some of these things I'm also thinking not only in terms of like as a framework, but also like things that have practical implications too. I think there are a lot that can help with some energy bills when you think about passive design. And I think there are also some churches are already doing that, like leaving doors open if it's a really hot day because <laughs> there's not work, work in AC, you know, so there might be mm-hmm. some different ways that that might be responding to. Another tenet being that the church must be layered. Um, and of course, layered in program is probably one of the clearest ways that this plays about too. Um, but I think there's a lot of opportunities to translate some of the layered activities and layered nature of the church and how things are designed. And also, currently, there are some spaces that are layered, like 
you enter through the threshold of the church and then there's the vestibule. And then after that, you come into like the aisle way to get into the church. So there's a lot of different layers and different spaces, space after space after space that's within there. Even if it's like a small area or even like zone after zone after zone, that's important in that. Um, the fourth one being that the church must be intentional about the procession. And I think this is important considering that when there are a lot of Black people that in society around them, that they're not able to get recognition or many times that they're kind of like, they're just not getting the respect or attention in other spaces. The church is the one place where like you will be seen as you come in. So there's many times you'll see like the choir come in, they're coming through that, down that middle aisle and they're all walking slow and they have their matching outfits and mm -hmm. they have a sway and everything. Part of that, like there's an importance to that procession and that pocket circumstance I think is important and there's many times that even like those different aisleways or areas of egress and moving around uh, a church space is not just for moving around, but for many people, their expression of worship happens in those aisleways where you see people zipping and zooming, depending on your, uh, your tradition, like running through the mm -hmm. aisles and as like a response to something that's going on. Um, and then lastly, that the church must have a clear ceremonial threshold. And talking about like the Black church having a very vertical understanding of their faith, as well as very horizontal understanding of their faith. I think that also translates to understand that in the gathering space where people are meeting for like their Sunday gatherings or for their prayer times or whatever more spiritual quote unquote times that they have, um, that there's always a clear sense of like, this is a sacred, important space. Um, and you want to be able to honor that and that it should look different. It should feel different. There should be an articulation um, between like those, those things that are different. So those are the, those five tenants. And once again, these things are all in progress, but I think it's, oh, it's a pretty it's good, deep. yeah, it's, it's a pretty good landing point. That's yeah, crazy. I like how you put the tenants together because a, a lot of things that happen in the Black church, especially when you're just in the nature of the operation of the church, there's a charge that's put out to people, right, who serve in different positions. And, and you saying the church must do this and the church must do that. I like how you set up the tenants. It is great, uh, your, your analysis and, and look at, the church and, and this everybody can't see us here on the podcast but Karen and I are nodding our heads every time <laughs> Sarah says something right it is it has been spot on to what we've experienced in our our um life uh growing up in the black church um you know Karen's had the pleasure of growing up in the AME church I grew up in the Baptist church mm -hmm. um and just right spending all your life there like Sarah said the same thing we've all spent our entire life in the black church in different capacities and then but it's been a part of our families right a part of our culture and then to see it be a part of our profession is something that has been new and exciting for me and it's been my hook for my connection between me and my son so you know my son is interested in the history of the black church um, but he is also now starting to see the connection in architecture and the black church it just like I said, all of the conversations that are coming up about it, the, the recent PBS special on the Black church, there's been just a lot of thought by historians. There's been a lot of thought now we see by architects that are looking at this typology, are looking at this way of life for Black people. I definitely think, like you said, it's more to be studied, Sarah. There's more to be seen. There's more to report out because our people, we, we, we are making history so much every day that we overlook history. Yeah, 
I mean, I, I say it as, as a black woman in architecture, you know, I, I come across it every time. I'm still the first at doing things and I don't even realize it. So I think we need to kind of step back as a community and realize that we're still making history. And then how do we get everybody to see the importance of these institutions in our neighborhood that we need to save? Because it is such a vital part of our, our history and our legacy that we need to, you know, keep it going for. I, I commend you for the, the work you're doing, Sarah. It's amazing. Thank and you. I will uh, just say, Sandra, that is so important. We need to preserve and save this history. I was a historian in some capacity at my church, but I know that a lot of the history in the AME church is being lost. And a lot of the churches were first in their communities did a lot of social justice work, civil rights work uh, that was either not documented on paper or in books. If it was, people have it in their basements or their attics. Please visit your relatives and find those books. Please don't so, let them throw yeah. away. Don't let them throw away our history. We, we need to get things in, in archives, right? Right. If you have an opportunity to talk with your grandparents, your great-grandparents, take your phone and record those stories so that we can have that information. Yes. That is just so important. It is so important right now to talk to the, to the 80-year-olds, the 90-year-olds in your life and like you said, record it, video record it, get mm -hmm. those stories documented. Those are things that they like, oh, child, we were just doing what we need to do, right? We were just making sure this, that, you know, this was taken care of in our neighborhood. But I'm like, you saved, you know, you fought for, you did, you know, whatever it was. It's like that story needs to be kept and that needs to be told. And it's not written down in a lot of instances. So we need to spend some time talking to some folks. I hope everybody's listening. I feel like I'm preaching, but yeah. <laughs> but we know we know black churches always have those program books from <laughs> from all of the different Jeez, programs 90s. and selling the ads and all those things. Don't right. throw them away. It's, it's black. I know it's, we don't like to say ads, right? It's yeah. it's like it's it's so much history in that program booklet because it was like you know like people, businesses. Uh, the leaders of the church, the right, leaders in the right. community. They put history yeah. in those program books. If it yeah. was an anniversary to yep. uh, uh, something that happened in the church, it was a story, little writing up, write up right. story in there. All of that stuff needs to be saved. We need to. Have... We don't like to save paper, but you can scan things so easily there now. So just there get the go. book and scan it, then throw it away. Then <laughs> throw it away. Yeah, <laughs> Unless no, it's, it's really nice. It's, it's, it's really nice. You think about an archive somewhere to put it at. I don't, you know, maybe not throw it away, but it 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 is so much out there. Um, man, there's so much to talk to you about, Sarah. It's one last thing I want to talk to you about. So, you we 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 talked about your your work that you're doing um, with Noma pipeline, but you've also been working with Noma and their work with NCARB on the baseline of belonging. You've attended a couple of group sessions about that and the discussion on what are some of the barriers to keep African-Americans, you know, from coming into this profession? How do we increase the numbers? I know you have personal stories as well, but tell us about your baseline of belonging and then we'll end off with where you are right now in your career and what you're working on. Yeah. So, Going to that, those sessions and being a part of that, there are actually some things that I learned that, of course, if I'm not in that group, I wouldn't know. So for instance, um, there were some people when talking about some of the barriers to getting licensed is language. 
There are some people where English isn't their first language and they're coming from, they might even be licensed in like different countries that they're coming from, but that license isn't recognized in the US. So because of that, they have to take the exams, but the exams are only in English and they may know English, but probably not. And I had this experience too, when I studied abroad, like knowing architectural language in English is not the same thing as knowing architectural language in Spanish. And mm. I had this conversation with some of my friends who are from Taiwan, where like, they're like, I could go back and practice architecture in Taiwan, but I'd have to learn a new language because I just don't know how to say some of these different words that I know in English and how to translate that. Um, so there are just some things that I learned where I'm like, you know, that does make sense, but I don't know if that's something that I've like thought about in terms mm -hmm. of my own personal experience of like what's made that difficult. But it was good. There was it was a pretty small group that came out, but I think there were some pretty meaningful conversations that were there. Um, there were some other people who were around my age, some other people who were from different ethnic backgrounds, some other people who were in their 50s and 60s and were there as a fly on the wall, but also there to have some conversations too about what was going on and to give their input. I will say I left those sessions pretty uh, optimistic about some changes that will be helpful for people as they're pursuing licensure. And I think even, I don't know if some of what came out of the study was a result of some of those changes, but as I'm actively studying for my exams right now, um, I believe NCARB, which I think this change has been coming for a while, but they recently made the change where you can reschedule your tests uh, without an additional fee which is major because there are times where I'm like, okay, I could reschedule, but then I got to pay like 50 bucks or whatever. Then the exam is already like $235. So similar to school, I'm like, I should have set up a savings account for taking my, taking my exams, which, which thankfully I'm thankful that like my, my firm is very supportive in getting it. So that hasn't been too much a barrier for me, but I know many people like don't work at my firm and many people don't right. have like policies that have been supportive to me for them in their own career. So I think they, I have some other friends who are definitely like, I can't take this exam until I absolutely positively know that I'm going to pass without a shadow of doubt. Um, and sometimes they might not test for like years because they just cannot afford to not pass. So I'm, I'm hopeful that also just with the people that were involved in the conversations that happened, that this will have greater impact, not only for, licensure, but also for school too. Because there were a couple of sessions talking about the experience of being in school and, um, you know, what have been some barriers there. And then I talked about like financially, it was hard. <laughs> and, and like, there are still some things I'm paying back due to like those times being in school. There's other people who like, they can't finish architecture school because like financially is such a burden. Or in terms of like time commitment, it's a burden. If I'm caretaker for my mom and working full time, in order to contribute to bills to the household while also doing architecture school, um, which has a culture of bringing your blanket and coffee maker into studio so that you don't have to leave studio and you can just work there all the time. Where some people, you know, they just don't have like the lifestyle for that. And also that can be restricted for other people who might be coming into architecture from a different profession who are older students, like in their thirties or forties. And like the freedom that you have as an 18 year old is not the same freedom as you have as a 35 year old. If you have two kids at home and you got to make sure those bills get paid. So um, yeah, I think, I think I'm hopeful for the conversations that came out of that. And I'm looking forward to hopefully not only benefiting me, but also people after me so we can get past this 2%. <laughs> it could be more, more close and tuned to more of the demographics of the, the place and locale that people are at.
I mean, I hear a lot of, you know, reasons that it's hard for people. Money is, is, is really a big reason for African-Americans, right? It's like, you know, we make a nice living in architecture, but we're not paid in architecture, right? So the to pay these fees, to pay to retake an exam, to pay to get the study materials, to pay to get the latest platform and software that's there for studying. It is a lot of cost that people are just, and, and I already have a student loan that I'm repaying, that people just say it's not worth me getting a license, right? And it's a real barrier, right? It's a real thing. If we're, if we're, a lot of us are first generation college grads coming through this and not having the generational wealth that other ethnic backgrounds have, it makes it tough for us to keep increasing that number, right? A lot of the people who are already graduates of School of Architecture, who are already working in firms, have not taken their license exam just because of financial reasons. That could be our big increase or uptick right there in, in licensed African-American professionals in, in this profession. But it's having the cost to do that, right? And raise a family. And half of us are taking care of our parents. You know, if you yeah. get to a certain age, you're like, you're doing other things, right? Mm -hmm. So that systemic piece to it is part of that number shortage that we have. And I, I'm, I'm thankful for, you know, Noma and NCARB teaming together to start to really look at this mm -hmm. and, and maybe help move that needle so we can increase those numbers. So thank you for participating and being a part of that. And, you know, we know you're on your journal, journey, right? Going through that same thing. So your perspective is needed. So yeah, we appreciate you. Thank you. All the work that you're doing, Sarah. I try my best. <laughs> yes, Sarah. <laughs> yes, yes, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us today, for coming on. And we could go on for an, another half hour, I'm sure. Exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, no problem. No problem at all. But we will take you up on our next our next church tour with yes, us to go with definitely. us. And we will take you up on, please, if you have an article we'll that you're writing. Maybe we'll record that. Can, yeah, we can. <laughs> we can uh, yeah, maybe we'll do that. Maybe that'll be uh, one of a podcast extras, right? Right. Stay, stay tuned for that. Our adventures with Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Hidden in Plain Sight, and that's spelled S-I-T-E, we really would appreciate your rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you know someone else who would love it too, please share it with them. If you're looking for more content like this, Hidden in Plain Sight is part of the Gable Media Network. You can find similar shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And before you go, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on the contributions of our upcoming contemporary and trailblazing architects. Want to learn more about the unknown ladies of architecture? Then I recommend you listen to She Builds Podcast where we tell the stories of remarkable women who have shaped the design and construction industries. Hi, I'm Jessica. I'm Nurjiti. And I'm Lizzie. After we graduated from Syracuse University School of Architecture, we set out to learn and share the untold stories of women that traditional school curriculum left out. One day, there's an announcement on campus that women had been seen wearing, quote, inappropriate clothing. Gasp. What the heck does that mean? Yeah, so it turns out that Ruth and her fellow classmates 
were these women. They had field classes where they're doing welding, forging, and foundry work. And obviously they have to wear jeans to those classes instead of like dresses or whatever else. While Gertie was in school, she wasn't just going to classes, trying to stay alive like some of us. I know that was me in school, just taking it day by day, but not Gertie. She became the president of Evigol, an honorary association of Cornell women architects. Of course she did. These are stories not taught in schools. Women who've molded the world of architecture, construction, and development for over a century. From Jane Jacobs to Ray Eames, She Builds Podcast explores the legacies of trailblazers. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform. Let's fill the gaps in history together. All you have to do is follow the link in the show notes and subscribe and be part of a movement to expand industry narratives.